Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have my first professional football coach, Michael Lombardi, on with us today. He is an American football executive and media analyst. He has had 30 years and had a front row seat and full access as three Titans, Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick reinvented the game, turning it into a national obsession while piling on the Super Bowl trophies. He was an assistant to the coaching staff of the New England Patriots and is a former analyst for the NFL Network and sports writer at NFL.com. He previously served as NFL executive with the San Francisco 49ers, Cleveland Browns, Philadelphia Eagles, and Oakland Raiders. He currently works for the sports and pop culture blog, The Ringer, and has a book coming out on September 11th. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So in full transparency, I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> I love it. It's good. There's a lot of Cowboy fans. Look, it's, it wasn't America's team for no reason. I get that. Yeah. And people say all the time, a Cowboys fan. So like I was born and raised in Hawaii. We have no sports teams. So I'm going to date mm-hmm. myself. But you will remember there used to be a competition in Hawaii for NFL athletes on off season. And they'd come to a school. It was my high school. And they would compete on like... Uh, you know, like a ropes course and they would swim and it was like a lot of fun. And so um, I met uh, a Dallas Cowboy, I think I was in like fourth or fifth grade and I was like, oh my God, he's so cute. Like I'm now a Cowboys fan. Like that's how it happened. It was nothing, you know, major about the sports. It was sort of like, I thought he was cute. I had his football card. That's how I picked him. So I, you know, I can understand that. Look, I grew up a, a Green Bay Packer fan because my last name's the same as Vince Lombardi, but I have no relation. And then when Vince left to go to the Redskins, I stayed a Redskin fan until I finally got paid by the 49ers. So I, I understand how that things work. Yeah, sometimes it's just the small things, right? I mean, you, you, there's no rhyme or reason to what sports team you're going to be completely obsessed with. Uh, that's for sure. Well, I like to start this off. Uh, I know we just had a quick little conversation, but I like to start off my podcast with something I call bullish and bearish and nothing too painful, but bullish is if you're really for something and bearish is if you're against it. So three quick questions and you can uh, answer bullish and bearish and give us a little color if you'd like, but if you just want to keep short, that's good too. Are you ready? I'm ready to go. All right. Esports be bigger than the NFL. I would be bearish on that. I don't think anything can get bigger than the NFL. I think esports is going to be a huge market. The NFL is a unique market. I mean, last night, for example, the, the, the Cleveland Browns played the Philadelphia Eagles in a preseason game, and the ratings were through the roof. So I think the NFL is going to be a little bit better. All righty. Fair enough. Next, uh, virtual reality or augmented reality as a training tool for athletes. Uh, I would be bullish on that. I think we're utilizing that some now. I mean, the Patriots have a, a virtual reality room that we take players up to so they can see and try to enhance their ability to learn uh, the game through the, the virtual reality aspect. I think there's so many different ways to teach. And as we get technology in the, our industry, which has come tremendously influence it, it's only going to get better. I think this is going to be a huge market. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Stanford VR is the company who backs a lot of the stuff that's being done. And, and I got some early preview to that a number of years back. I was just fascinated by it. Super excited to see how that shapes itself out. All right. The next one, I had to take the opportunity. A woman head coach in the NFL. Oh, I, I would only say bearish here because we are such a, an industry that is, you know, there's an, there's an aspect to our industry that you've had to play 
to have knowledge. Unlike politics, you know, you don't have to run for political office. To, to <laughs> no comment. Politics, right? <laughs> but in football, there needs to be some sense of playing and, and all that. So I, I only because of the way it's set up, I, w- I would be bearish. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think that there's only a couple of assistant coaches that are that are women now, and obviously in trainers and, and back office uh, roles. But I think that there's some value there too. But I'd love to dig into it. You know, in in talking about the work that you've done in leading up to publishing of your book, The Gritty and Genius: A Masterclass in Winning Championships and Building Dynasties in the NFL. And I want to start with that sort of the masterclass of winning championships. I, I'm going to guess it starts with the sort of the leader, i.e. the head coach. It, it does. In the NFL, it's a unique issue because the NFL, there's so many layers to an organization. There's the owner, there's the general manager, there's the marketing and business aspect of the, of the team, and then there's the coach. But the culture of an organization has to come from the coach. It has to start. The owner can give you what he believes he wants as a football team, but the head coach has to emplace the culture. And when you look at the teams that have been successful over the last 30 years, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, two men I worked for, they were cultural centric. And what they were, were they were going to worry about building the culture first before worrying about who was going to win the game. And culture matters. And what I see is a devoid of culture in, in our world today, football and everywhere. Uh, there's a, the leadership is not developing the culture. They think the culture's there. It's just like on the walls, it's going to develop. And that's why, you know, if you go back to 1955, there were uh, the Fortune 500 companies, there's only 60 of them left. And you would say, well, that's because of technology and all that. Well, the reality of it is, is they're predicting in the next 10 years, of the Fortune 500 companies, only 250 will still be here in 10 years from now. And most of that is because we're not developing leaders as culture builders. Yeah. You know, when I went down the path of, uh, of writing my book, I had this very interesting conversation with a gentleman who used to be a president of a, of a professional football team uh, here in Los Angeles, and he, you can figure out what team. And, and, and I would say that we had this whole conversation about leadership and recruiting players and, and, and how it's almost like recruiting people for your C-suite or for your boardroom, right? It, it has to be like, what's their skill set? What do we need? You know, if you're, you know, playing as you were with the Patriots, it's not like you would go out, let's say five or seven years ago and recruit a, a first draft quarterback, right? You're sort of like, do we need that today, right? Or do we want to, you know, build up our our front line or our defense or our wide receivers? Like you would recruit based on what you have and where you need help. Fair? Right. Yeah, right? fair. That's really fair. And and so how do you apply that to business? Like so someone who's listening and goes, you know, like I love sports and and you know, even with fantasy football, they're everyone's out there picking their teams and what can they learn from that as it relates to their day-to-day jobs? Well, I think in business, it's no different. So you start with a plan, right? You have to know who you are. And I equate this to the restaurant business in my book. I mean, you and I could go online today and we could steal all of Emeril Lagasse's recipes and we can open up a a restaurant here in Los Angeles and call it Emeril's 2 and have a takeoff on all his recipes. The problem is, even though we have the recipes, we really don't know how to cook them. So you have to figure out a way to develop 
your own skill plan. And this is what happens most of the time in the NFL. People don't really, they borrow, beg, they look for different things. When you come up with a comprehensive plan to what you want to be, and this isn't we want to win the Super Bowl. This is what you want the culture to be like and spend time on that and educate the people. When you bring new people into your organization, they don't know anything about your culture. You have to educate them. The Patriots spend six weeks in the spring educating all their young players on what their culture is about. It's a training tool. And so we lose this step. And so because we don't train, we think it's just going to happen organically. And it doesn't. You know, when I was with Bill Walsh in 1984, we were in the draft room. There was only 28 teams in the NFL. He said to me, why are you acting like a crazy man? Everything's pretty calm. Everything's going to be okay. And I said, well, this team did that and that team did this. And he said, look, Michael, we're only competing against eight teams here. And that was true then when there was 28. Today, there's only eight teams. And so either you're one of the eight or you're not. And when you are one of the eight, you have the culture and the plan that matches. Yeah, I think culture is a big topic today. You know, so if you're a player, I'm wondering, you know, I guess I'm posing this as a question as well. You know, as I've gotten more seasoned in being, you know, in the corporate world, you know, I'm 25 or 30 years into the corporate world at this point. I'm in my early 50s. and in my 20s, I don't know if I understood that I wanted to align myself with a particular culture. I'm just making a statement. Now I get that. And you know, sort of where I'm working now, that very much aligns to me. Now millennials, we hear a lot of research that's saying that they make decisions on brands they buy with uh, and engage with and where they want to work based on culture. And so thinking about it from the athlete's perspective, right? These some of these guys are 20, 21 years old and they're making a decision that they will have this very short window of time because of just the physicality of the sport. Let's call it five to seven years, whatever the average is. It might even be two or three in the average player, right? So let's call it five to seven. They're making a decision. Do you think that they're actually viewing it culturally or are they just looking at it like I just want to go and win? And and that's where sometimes teams don't gel. I think they look at it as where can I make the most profitability because my time span's so short, right. I've got to maximize my dollars. And you as a leader have to turn that around. You've got to spin that story differently because the one thing I've learned in my career is people only respect knowledge. Players only respect knowledge. If you're 18 or 80, they'll respect you if you can teach them how to become better at their craft. And this applies to any, any line of business. So as the leader, you have to prove to them that you can make them better. They're motivated by money at times. They're motivated by camaraderie and winning at times. But when you want to get to them, your knowledge will get to them, not your generic speeches. And I think that in today's age, no matter where the millennials are, they want to be better. They want to improve. There is always this passion to get better. And if you can help them and drive them there, you'll get an audience. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is I think as fans, you know, that watches a sport or even watches an individual athlete, like, you know, Tiger making a comeback and, and how, you know, the TV ratings are higher than they've been in years, you know, or even as you just mentioned, you know, a preseason game had really high ratings. And so do you think esports will displace it? Uh, as, as fans of the sport, I think there's a ton of value in the mechanics of professional sports, the roles of coaches and assistant coaches and all the support team that's around it. And, you know, you only have, uh, you know, X amount of players. I mean, how many players are on an NFL team? 50? 
there's 53 and then there's a practice squad, which is 10. So there's, you know, in, within an organization, you're going to have to manage 65 to 70 people on a daily basis. So, and how many teams are there total now? 32. Right. So a couple thousand players, you know, and, and every kid who's playing Pop Warner wants to be a pro player. Right. right. So, right. right. so, you know, and, and every Pop Warner coach wants to be Bill Belichick. Right. I mean, so right. at the end of the day, there's only, you know, 32 jobs like Bill's and a couple thousand jobs. And so, you know, as people that are listening to this podcast, you know, how, how do you create a professional athlete mentality in your day-to-day job so that you can just constantly strive to be the best that you can be in your, in your work, you know, and, and perform. I, I think that's, I think that's comes right back to the four essential categories of leadership. And I, and I think this is really what, what we, we all lead ourselves. We get this notion that leadership is about George Patton talking in front of the third army or, you, you know, Steve Jobs is we're all leaders of ourselves. And I think when you have a plan for yourself and you can understand your plan and you work on this every single day and you direct yourself on the plan. And then you can build trust with people. I think this is an important component of a young coach, a high school coach, a teacher. You've got to build trust. How do you build trust? You build trust by being important to the culture, by maintaining the culture, by making some tough decisions, by not avoiding confrontation. I think that's one of the areas where we tend to be a little bit lax is we want passive aggressive behavior when we can just, if we can have a situation where we're going to be confrontational in terms of being honest and open and have those dialogues will get better. And then the fourth area is, is how do you manage yourself? Are you spending an hour a day working on improving yourself? Are you reading books? Are you learning more? And in those four categories, when you do those really well, you lead your life and you'll have other people follow you because knowledge creates followers. We've seen this on Twitter, right, Tiffany? I mean, you, people were buying Twitter followers, that's not how you get them. You get them through knowledge. People want to follow you because they think they're going to learn something. They're going to be entertained somehow. And I think those four areas speak to it most. And where do you think people get those four areas wrong? Like if you were to say in each of those four categories, you know, you've been doing this a long time and, and, and really, I mean, especially in your profession. They get it wrong in the man- which is called management of self. They're, they have a hard time being, being self-critical. They have a hard time being honest with themselves. Like, you know, there's an old saying in, in one of Jackson Brown's songs, you know, we forget about the losses and we exaggerate the wins. Well, a lot of times in the NFL, people forget about the losses and exaggerate the wins, whereas Belichick is all about looking at it as if he didn't win. He's doing an autopsy of the game and he's being self-critical. And I think you have to do that every single day. Where can I get better? What am I not working on properly? Where can I improve? We tend to take the path of least resistance. And when we do that, it becomes a huge problem. I have a, a, a funny story about I Love Lucy. I tell to people that I speak with all the time. And, you know, you, you remember I Love Lucy. They had those two rooms and Lucy's in the bedroom and a wedding ring falls off her finger and she falls to the floor. She starts looking for it and she can't find it. You know, later in the episode, Ricky comes home. He sees Lucy in the, in, in the living room crawling on the floor and he's aghast. And he says, what are you doing down there, Lucy? She said, I lost my wedding ring. And she said, he, she, he says, well, where did you lose it? And he, she says, well, I lost it in the bedroom. And he says, well, why are you looking in the living room? And she says, because the light's better out here. And, and that's what most people do is they work on the situations where the light's the best, even if it's not going to make them better. Yeah. I think for many people, change is really hard. 
personally, right? So in business, you want to change the direction of the company. You want to recover from a growth stall. You want to, you know, change out your leadership team or your board or whatever it might be. And in order to disrupt anything, you almost have to disrupt yourself. Fair? Fair. Very fair. I, I, I had a sign in my office when I worked at the Oakland Raiders because I worked for a man named Al Davis who was brilliant. And Al Davis was so successful in the 60s and so successful in the 70s and some and to the 80s. And when the game changed and when we got free agency and the player salaries increased, that change affected him. And it's by Eric Shaninsky, of the, the former chief of staff of the United States Army. If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I think that's really true. I held that sign in my office. He never really could understand what I was trying to get to. But I think it's so important. You know, Churchill has that great quote, to improve is to change, to be perfect is to change often. And I think that's where, and we see change as, oh, no, we're getting off track. And this falls in that area of leadership when they trust you. People trust you. People trust you to be consistent, but they also trust you to see ahead and how to make those slight changes and how you're going to win games. So, you know, one thing that that I have always found uh, interesting when I've sort of watched any kind of documentary on uh, the NFL is uh, where you'll have captains on the team, you know, offense, defense, special teams, probably those three. And um, so for people that are not in the United States listening to this, I'm talking about American football, not soccer. Uh, and, and yet there are players who are leaders that are peers. So just because you aren't, you know, the captain with a C on your shirt, or you're not the assistant coach, or you're not the head coach, or you're not Mike Lombardi. I mean, right at the end of the day, you're a player, an individual contributor, yet you are a leader on the field. What do you think separates? Because they're all performing at the highest level, right? There's only 14 people or whatever on the field at one time. There's 28 people out of the millions of people in the world. They're the ones playing. So they're at the highest level of performance. Yet one stands out, not only as a great sort of, you know, athlete, and whatever position they're playing, but this this leader of peers, and I think that's super unique. No doubt, I think that the guys, you know, there's 22 guys on a football field, and there's always going to be the alpha dog, the guy that, you know, it's like in anything in the United States Army, the Marines, any of those places, that guy is going to be ha- have leadership skills. And where does it show up? It shows up when no one's watching. It shows up when he works on things without somebody telling him to. You know, Belichick has a saying about mental toughness. He says, mental toughness is doing what's right for the team when it might not be right for you. And when you get 22 guys on the field that are, that are, that are buying into that mental toughness theory, you're going to create some great situations with your team. And so for me, you know, that's what we're always looking for in players is are they mentally tough? Are they trying to get better? Will they work? Are they self-starters? And as an evaluator, and that's what you do most of the time in the NFL, you evaluate those people, you're looking for guys that'll do it. And we've learned this, past performance will predict future achievement. If you've done it in the past, you'll probably do it in the future. Tom Brady was always working hard at Michigan. It's no surprise he's working hard at New England. Right. But he wasn't sort of, he wasn't, if I'm remembering correctly, because remember, I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> he was no star. He was no star. But no, he wasn't, right? I mean, he was recruited. I mean, you know, he was in the draft on like, wasn't he on like the second or third round? No, he went in the sixth round. I mean, he was an afterthought. Yeah. You know, but but again, he combined his passion and desire with an opportunity. And once he got that opportunity, where makes Tom so special and so unique is he's never sitting around congratulating himself 
for what he's accomplished. He's always looking to do more. And that that appetite is what drives him. And that's what you want your best players to be. You know, you want your best players to work the hardest. You want your best players to demand of themselves. I mean, Kobe Bryant just turned 40 years old yesterday. There's a great story about Kobe where he calls a coach. He's work, he's practicing at the Olympic team. And he wakes up uh, the strength coach at 4.15 in the morning and casually says, hey, uh, are you, did I bother you? And the coach obviously, well, you know, no. Hey, look, I need some extra conditioning. Would you mind meeting me at the gym at 5 o'clock? And the coach says, sure, I'll meet you. So Kobe shows, so he shows up to the gym at five and in the gym, Kobe's already drenched like he's just been in the pool. Kobe goes through a two hour conditioning workout. The coach goes home, he takes a nap, he shows back up at one o'clock for the real practice and he, and he sees Kobe shooting on the other court and he, and he looks over there and he walks over to Kobe and says, how you feel? He says, I feel great. He said, what time did you get done? And Kobe looks at him and says, what do you mean? What time did I get done? What time did you finish our morning workout? He said, oh, I just got done now. I wanted to have 800 makes. I just finished. Now I'm ready to practice. That's what you want. That's what you. That's why Kobe was great. Kobe was great because he he knew he was great, but he worked at being great. He practiced great. He yeah. was determined. Yeah, and I would tell you, like, when people say ask me sort of a question, they'll go, "Oh, like, what do you think the trick was in you doing what you've been able to do?" And I always say, "I'm a student of my profession." Like, you know, it will be a podcast, a book. I will have a conversation with someone. I feel like. If I can learn from the people around me, and then at some point in time, I may be able to use that to either share that learning with someone else or apply it to what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. But I have this thirst for, and I'm this curiosity for learning for the things that I might not understand. Like even something as simple as like, what's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Or, you know, how do you do this on a PNL? Or, you know, what, what leadership tricks can I... Um, or insights can I learn from the NFL that I can apply even though I don't manage anyone, right? It's it's this sort of quest for learning and for being better. Yeah? No doubt. I think that curiosity is what makes us all. And, you know, I have a friend of mine, George Raveling. He's 81 years old. Uh, he's a former coach. He he's He's on a quest to become the smartest person in the world. And every day he wants to get better. And when you do that at 81 – you know, you, you want to be better at every, you're learning. You, you Once you lose that curiosity, you, you're no longer living. And I think that's so important. Like, it's really an interesting thing to do because it rounds you. And whether you're a high school coach, whether you're Bill Belichick, Belichick, you know, he has three or four things he wants to learn about. Now, you can't learn everything, but you can learn a couple things as you're going. And then can he take those ideas you learn and implement them in? One of the reasons I got into this whole management thing was because I was driving Bill Walsh around in a car, this great Porsche back in 1984. And he asked me this question. He says, Michael, have you ever, have you ever heard of Tom Peters? And I thought he was asking me about a punter from South Dakota State. And I said, coach, not really. I don't know that punter. He said, no, 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 not the punter. He said, the guy who just wrote this book with Bob Waterman called In Search of Excellence. I said, no, coach, I don't know who he is. He said, go to the bookstore today and pick up that book and read that book. Because if you want to be a great coach or a great executive, you need to understand what these two men are talking about. And I did. And that set me on a journey about management and about learning and all those things. And, I, and I've been thankful ever since. Yeah. And I would tell you full circle moment for me as well, right? Because that was the very first business book I ever read. And I was 16 or 17 when I read it, followed right right behind it with Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yep. And then fast forward literally uh, 45 years 
And uh, Tom wrote an endorsement for my book, my first book, right? And he wrote an endorsement for yours. So it, it's, you know, it's sort of this paying it forward, right? Where we, I, I believe I stand on the shoulders of many, many giants before me on things that I get to do every day, which is, uh, I feel blessed about. And so that going back to what I was just saying, right? If you learn and you can absorb, then how do you sort of give it back? You mentor people. I mean, that's what you do. You mentor people as much as you can. And in our world that we live in today, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, people can contact you and you can send out messages to people and share. I think the one thing that I've learned in life is when you give, you give, you get way more back. And as you get older in life, you don't mind giving. You know, when you're young and competing against everybody, you're always guarding your stuff like it's some secret. But if you give to people back and help young people and mentor them, it makes you better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, it, it, as you were preparing for this book, what, what were the, what were the three things that you, that you felt surprised you that you didn't think going in? So the book is gritty and genius comes out in September, super excited to get my hands on a copy. Um, but what, but what do you think uh, were the things that surprised you the most? Well, I think what surprised me is basically I, I didn't set out to write a book about culture. And, and by the end of the book, it was really all about culture. You know, it, it's like even though it's like, you know, Tom's been a mentor to me without really knowing him. So his voice is always in my head and it carried through throughout this book. It, you know, the lessons that you learn from him, the quotes that you learn from watching his presentations, whether it be online or at his website, you know, and then through other people. So I learned that this book was really about culture and I learned that not everybody does what you think they do. And I think for the, the people that read this book, it's not a commonplace. I mean, as Bill Walsh said, we're only competing against eight. And so like in most industries, your competition isn't everybody. It's the three or four people that are really doing it right, that have the right culture. And I learned that about this when I wrote this book, that it's pretty much similar. Football and business, football and life are pretty similar, how you handle those things. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that must be really difficult as a leader in, in, you know, with a high performing organization, like a professional sports team is kind of managing all the personality. And I'm going to say big personality is <laughs> a polite way to say it, but, and, and navigating that uh, must be really difficult because I know, you know, in my, my own experience, um, we come with our own, you know, sets of biases and our points of view and we think it's right. And, but, you know, we're not all high performing athletes, you know, that are, that are making millions of dollars and, you know, one injury can, can wipe out an entire career. Uh, and so how do you navigate managing, you know, people who are all believe they're high performers and, you know, making sure that everyone is working together. And I know that the answer is culture, but how have you been able to overcome those when people sort of resist working because of, because of ego? I, I think there's a, you know, there's a great movie called Hoosiers and, and Hoosiers is about this basketball coach from Indiana in the fifties. And he takes a team to the state championship. Well, early in the movie, he teaches us this thing called the law of threes, which is really how you deal with this situation. In most organizations, there's three groups of people. The first group are the ones that will do anything you want them to do. They're there. They're going to show up early. They just they are bought in completely no matter who's in charge. The second group are undecided. They're not sure about anything. And the third group are these ones that kind of fight you on things. And instinctively, as a leader, you want to placate 
to group three. You want to win them over because you think if I win them over, you know, I'm going to create a better organization because they're the most talented people. When in Hoosiers, what he did was he focused only on the people that were there. And that's all Belichick focuses on, the people that are in group one. And so when you focus on those in group one, the undecided in group two slowly shift over into group one. And the people in the group three become isolated. They become the voice in darkness and they don't, no one hears them. And eventually they're going to move over to you. And if they don't, you're going to have to get rid of them. But I think that's the best way to handle it. And, and you focus on the people that want to do the things. Now, Football's a talent organization. You need a lot of talent. But hopefully, through your development of players and through your selection of players, you find a way to get players that are talented that want to be in group one. Yeah, and, and even uh, there was the movie that Mark Wahlberg did, right? It was the Eagles, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, he was a small guy, and he never got drafted. And, he, you know, he was talented enough, but it was all about that grit, right, where yeah. – you know, if you think about those three groups, like, you know, do what you want me to, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be Kobe. I'm going to shoot 800 balls a day. What makes him unique is he's super talented and very committed to the craft, right? But you can mm-hmm. have someone who's not quite that talented, very committed to the, to the craft and equally impactful. No doubt. And, and, and those, are the, and they get better, you know, and they get better and they make the team. Because remember, the team needs to be mentally tough. And those guys will do what's right for the team that might not be right for them. And the more you have of that, it's – look, the, the, the United States hockey team that beat the Soviets in 1984, that's all they were. That's all they were. We could have played the Soviets ten times. We probably would have lost nine. But we won that gold medal because those guys played like a team. Right. And they were just – they were kind of a hodgepodge group, right? And so yeah. – you know, you and and you know, I often get asked, you know, about building high-performing sales organizations specifically, and we break it up into I break it up into sort of three groups as well. Sort of the A, the very gut seller, and I use Tiger Woods as an example. And I say he was born to have a golf club in his hand. Like that's the A seller. Like they are doing exactly what they should be doing. The B seller is this sort of group one. I'll I'll do what you want me to do. I'm going to practice 800 times. I may not be naturally gifted with selling, but I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be the best I can be is sort of like this B performer. And then a C performer is, it's, it's kind of someone who maybe it was the, not the right hire. It's not the right profession for them, or it's just not the right cultural fit. Whatever it is, it's sort of someone that has to be managed out. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when people try to make a difference in an organization, I see them default to going to the A's. And I'm like, you know, the problem with that is that they're like, you know, I I tend to call myself an A seller in that case is that I'm already very self-motivated to do those things. Like I'm already shooting at 4.30 in the morning, 800 shots before practice begins. Like, right. And so I just need to know what you need me to do and I'll find the best way to get it done. Where if you took your attention to the B performers who are, they're the workhorses, where they're that guy who tried out for the Philadelphia Eagles, didn't have the raw talent, but full commitment and will be excellent because they're they're going to practice and practice and practice, even though they may not be, you know, uh, Tony Dorsett, right? So Yeah, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. Yeah. And, and I think as a leader, that's the path of least resistance. That's Lucy looking for their for the wedding ring in the living room when you're not working with group two, when you just want group one. Development of talent is important job as a leader. You've got to develop your talent. And 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 when you work with the young, when you work with people in that group, 
that can do it, you're going to put them in. The, you're going to make them group one performers. Yeah, and I and I think that if you get that middle group to improve just two to five percent, because they've made the team, right? They're on your sales force or they're on the field, like they're there for a reason. And so if you can just make them ever slightly so much better, right? It, it, and even just a little bit, it can have huge impact to performance of a company. No doubt. And, and that's what we want. We want everybody. Look, when you stand in front of your team, when when Belichick lost the Super Bowl last year and he stands in front of his team, he's got everybody has to get 1% better. And that includes the coaches. This is not the players. Me as a leader, I have to get 1%. And then if we combine our 1% improvement, Imagine the growth we're going to have as an organization. Yeah, I mean, just really fantastic. Uh, I, I could talk to you for hours. Like, I, I almost have to say, like, when the book comes out, like, please come back and let's have this conversation, keep this conversation going, because I try to mix up the guests. And, you know, this is my first, uh, you know, soiree into the professional sports side. And I think I just because I think I grew up being an athlete and never made it to the pros, obviously. But I mean, ultimately it's like, it's, I feel everything I learned about business and how to lead and how to work in teams successfully happened from my experience in sports, hands down, like how to win, win and be humble, how to lose with my head held up high, how to be coached, how to coach, how to be a teammate, how to, you know, be a leader on the court. I mean, all those things uh, I learned at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. You know, I think that people listening who have kids and and their kids are now part of sports organizations where there are no losers and everyone's a winner, I think does a disservice to future leaders in this country. <laughs> but that's my opinion. Um, I agree. Yeah, I, I think there's lots to be learned in just, I don't care if it's chess or <laughs> table tennis, or it has to just be something where they feel well, we like- We have to learn how to compete. We yeah. have to learn how to compete. A competition is a learned habit. It doesn't just happen instinctively, you know? And so that's, we have to teach people how to properly complete, compete. And I think that's important. All right. So the last question I've got for you, we're just starting the season. Who's going to win the Super Bowl 2019? I, I, I would- I'm going to go with the Houston Texans and the and the Green Bay Packers will face off in Super Bowl 53. Uh, I, I don't know who would win. I'm just, you know, this is so far out, but I like those two teams. I love their quarterbacks. Both quarterbacks build the culture. And for me, Deshaun Watson was always a culture builder, and Aaron Rodgers is tremendous. So those are my two picks. Well, if that comes true, you and I are going to Vegas. There you go. All right. <laughs> yes. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the What's Next podcast. I'm super excited for everything you have ahead of you with this book launch. And uh, I appreciate your time with us today. Thank you, Tiffany. That was such a fun podcast. I really enjoyed talking to Michael Lombardi. It's always fascinating to learn from other industries, specifically one like the NFL. You've got high performing athletes all on the field at the same time, jockeying for position, trying to make teams. You've got coaches having to manage uh, all kinds of different personalities and recruiting players. And how do you make this cohesive team for this burst in time and, and only have 53 people that are, are really pulling for this massive organization? I thought it was fascinating to understand some of the leadership tips we can take from the NFL and apply to our daily lives. 
also in our own personal growth and not being too self-critical and forget about all the sort of losses and just embellish on the wins, like just trying to figure out how do we learn from those losses and apply things to our day-to-day life and really being leaders for those around us, whether we are leaders in title or not. I hope you enjoyed the What's Next podcast with Michael Lombardi as much as I did. Please subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, and I look forward to having you join me next time. Have a great day.